Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 5th, 2016, and my guest is Allison Wolf, the Sir Roy Griffiths Professor of Public Sector Management at King's College London. She is the author of The Double X Factor, How the Rise of Working Women Has Created a Far Less Equal World. And she's a baroness and a commander of the Order of the British Empire. Allison, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you. I want to give a heads up to parents who might be listening with young children. Econ Talk is usually G-rated. This week, depending on how the conversation goes, it might up, end up being PG or PG-13. So um, respond accordingly with your own kids. Now, Allison, your book is an eye-opening look at inequality and gender. And I want to start with a quote. You say the following. Until now, all women's lives, whether rich or poor, have been dominated by the same experiences and pleasures. Today, elite and highly educated women have become a class apart. However, these professionals, businesswomen and holders of advanced degrees, the top 15 or 20 percent of a developed country's female workforce, have not moved further apart from men. On the contrary, they are now more like the men of the family than ever before in history. It is from other women that they have drawn away. Uh, close quote. Explain. Just think back to, for example, the world of early America. And what you would find is that whether or not you were a girl in a well-off Boston household or a girl on a hard scrabble Appalachian farm, what decided your life was whether or not you made a good marriage. Essentially, you had to make a good marriage. Everything else was secondary or irrelevant. You had to make a good marriage because actually that's what you were born into the world to be. You were born into the world to be a wife and a mother, which would mean you would have status and security and hopefully children to look after you in old age and you would be the one who reared them. Or you were going to be a spinster, surplus, on the shelf with essentially no capacity of making a career. So whereas a boy from a tough background could occasionally, um, with difficulty, make it on his own. As a woman, you just couldn't. You simply couldn't. So whatever you were, that was what being a woman was. I don't mean that it was all utter misery for everybody, but it didn't make any real difference what the wealth of your family was. That was what defined you. And that meant that all women had a completely common set of concerns and experiences. And in that sense, they were a sisterhood. I don't mean they all liked each other because they didn't all <laughs> like each other. And they were definitely rivals. But they were a genuine sisterhood in the sense that they had all this in common. And today, if you are a clever, privileged young person, whether you're at Oxford, Harvard, Brown, King's where I teach, you will have far more in common as a female student with the male students who are alongside you than you will with the vast majority of other young women in your country. And 
it's the class that really matters. Now, class has always mattered. But as a woman, you just kind of hung on to whichever class you were born or or married into. It wasn't really your class in the sense that you'd created your class position. You just kind of hung in there. Today, you as a woman can also be upwardly mobile or downwardly mobile. And it's your self-made class. It's you, you as an educated or less educated, fortunate or less fortunate careerist, non-careerist woman who makes your fate. And you're very likely to marry somebody like you if you marry at all. But what really decides your life is that you are or aren't a member of that top 15%. I can't help thinking as you mention that the um, the novels of Charles Dickens and Jane Austen, we have Oliver on the one hand who does rise through a set of good circumstances and his character, a set of luck and character. But in Jane Austen's novels, they're all about whether you marry wisely or not. And as you point out, uh, that kind of captures uh, that different world. And in preparing for this interview, I was very saddened to realize, I'm ashamed I didn't know this, but Jane Austen died at 41. I didn't realize she had died so young and she died unmarried, as was her sister. And uh, that that fate of being unmarried was probably very prominent in her mind as a person in that century. I think that's totally right. One of the things that was interesting to me when I was writing this book is how the whole way in which I read Jane Austen changed. I, I, I think like many people, I think her novels are wonderful. And until I started to work in this field, I'd always felt that Jane Austen characters were, were sort of like me. They were, yeah, they were kind of, not that I was as wonderful as some of them. Uh, you know, we'd all like to have been Lizzie in Pride and Prejudice and in just, just in terms of the sort of amazing person she was. But but these were people who, who sort of saw the world in the same way as I did. They were intelligent, essentially quite modern women. And you could imagine knowing people like them. And at one level, that's absolutely true. It's still true. And it's one reason why the novels still work so well for a modern audience. But of course, they're actually completely unlike me. Totally unlike me for all the reasons that you were saying that that if you look at the boys in 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 Charles Dickens and in the background some of the the the, the young men in in the Austen novels they're actually able to have some control over their fate other than by finding a husband and that is so untrue in in Jane Austen it's full of young women who make marriages they don't really want to make because there is no alternative as well as the heroines for whom there's a happy ending and the other heroines like Jane Austen themselves who just actually decide they will hang in there and be kind of spinsters in the corner of their brother's sitting room rather than be emotionally deeply unhappy but I became tremendously aware of this huge gulf between the 19th century and the 21st century, above all in in this aspect, in the fact that for women, it's a completely different universe. And, and some, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. I mean, the there are other aspects of modern society which are perhaps less kind to women. But for, for able and fortunate women in peaceful countries, this is a pretty good time to be born and a pretty good time to be actually able to storm the elite. And I think we should be a bit more gracious and aware that we're very lucky. I want to read another quote um, where you talk about, I think you say there's about 75, will, 75 million women 
in this elite class who are a lot like men and a lot different from other women. And I, I like the way you phrase, I think you say it's, you know, it's, it's a significantly sized country is one way to think about the magnitude of this, this modern phenomenon. And you write the following quote, today's highly educated and professional women, the top 15 or 20 percent, not only have different jobs from other women, they also have quite different patterns of lifetime employment from other women. They're different in when and how much they work. They have quite different marriage and childbearing patterns and very different divorce rates. They break up their children differently, and they differ in how they run their homes, end of quote. So I want to talk about some of each of those in turn because they're each – a lot of they're, – they're fascinating. So let's talk about employment, uh, both the type of work that highly educated women do relative to men and, and less educated women and the frequency and nature of it. The highly educated women whom I talk about the most don't do exactly the same jobs as men. There are little differences about which they tend to get very excited, but they essentially do the same jobs as men. So if you look at not the top half of half a percent, but you look at the top sort of 15 to 20 percent of jobs in a country like the US or the UK, which are well-paid professional jobs, the people who've been doing fine in the last 30 years. We are now in a situation in which in developed countries, half of those jobs are held by women. And that, of course, is a completely novel situation. And it's come about gradually, but it reflects and is achieved through the fact that women are also at least half of the students in the universities that feed into these good jobs. I think most people know that, or many people know that, that there are far more women now in higher education than, than there are men in most of the world. But I think the key point is that there are now as many women as men, and in many cases, more women than men in the, in the top schools. And that's what feeds you into these, these high status, well-paid, professional and business jobs. Now, of course, and I'm sure you'll be coming to this, it's still the women who have the babies. It's still the women who make more changes in their lifestyle when a child comes. But the women who are highly educated and who do these jobs stay in work almost without interruption throughout their careers, which is actually a very important precondition for, for doing very well in the workplace. They may go part-time, but they don't interrupt. And that's Again, a real difference, both from their grandmothers or even their mothers, and completely different from the dominant pattern for people who are less well off, for whom staying in work is not vital in terms of career, it's not something that makes economic sense in terms of what's left in your pay packet. And so you've still got this pattern there where people tend to stop work or go very part-time when they have a small child, and that's not true at the top. And what about uh, marriage and childbearing uh, and childbearing and child rearing? Okay, marriage is dramatically different. I suspect that people who are listening to this program know fewer and fewer people who get married before their late 20s or indeed their 30s and almost no one who has babies very young. That's because among the, the highly educated and the sort of people who are actually interested in the world's economy on a day-to-day -day way and want to keep up with it, they, these are the highly educated classes. And these people just don't have babies until they're 
increasingly in their 30s. They just don't. And what has happened is that there's this big widening gap between the average age at which people have their first child. And it's not just a nice smooth curve in which, you know, the, the, the very uneducated have a child at, a, say, sort of 18 or 19, and then it goes up a little bit to 21, and then it's this nice smooth curve. It's actually a sort of a rupture. So people who are the, 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 the best paid, the best educated, this, this, this group, which, as I said, has done very well economically, unlike many other people, they're the ones who have actually drawn away from everybody else. And if you go back... 40 or 50 years, you find that college-educated women had their first child at pretty much the same age as women who had quit education after high school. And now that's not true. It's still true that the teenage mothers, of whom there are fewer and fewer, tend to be really poorly educated. But what's truly remarkable is the way that you've got this very distinctive pattern in which the, the highly educated, the successful professional women marry successful professional men and they have their families later and later and much, much later than anybody else. The other thing that's quite interesting is that they don't have their babies out of marriage. Other people do, the highly educated professional women don't. And the divorce rates are very different as well. The divorce rates are very different as well, which is even more extraordinary given the fact that, you know, fewer of the other groups get married at all. But among those who do, they are much more likely to get divorced than the privileged top layer. So in a minute, we'll turn to why this changes, this incredibly dramatic change, which you highlight, and it's plural changes, why they've happened. But one more aspect of the difference I want to talk about, which is which very interesting is how they run their homes. Um, talk about the differences between highly educated women and, and less educated women. The differences have an awful lot to do with the fact that if you're highly educated, you earn more on the whole, and you're very likely to be part of a two-adult household in which you've got two very good incomes coming in. So in that situation, there are two things. I mean, first of all, you can afford servants, and secondly, it makes a lot of sense to have them because if you go back to work, you're going to stay on the career track, both of you. You're going to go on earning more over a lifetime, even if there are some sort of bumps along the way, both of you. And the, if you like, the, the investment of shelling out for the cost of a nanny and a housekeeper or a, maybe or a housekeeper in most cases, um, makes a lot of sense. Because by definition, if you're going to do this, you need to be earning enough that after tax, you will still have plenty left between you to pay for the childcare. And as I said, you also stand to lose more if you drop out. So if you are working on the checkout in a store, if you stop doing it for three or four years and you come back, the job will still be there. You won't have lost some tremendous amount of progress in your career by taking a break. If you take a break and you are working for a large private corporation or you are working as an academic or you are working as an MD or any of these things, a total break is really bad news in terms of your lifetime prospects, not just your earnings right now. So you've had that on the one side. And then on the other side, after a period in which it seemed like servants had disappeared from rich countries. We've now got access to a huge global pool of people who are only too delighted to come and work for affluent families all around the world because for them, this is, again, a very good 
a very good deal. I mean, the world is full of, for example, excellent Filipino nannies and housekeepers who are working away from home in order to pay the private school fees of children, nieces and nephews back home. So you could say in a way, well, you could say that in some sense everybody benefits. It's hardly an ideal world, but it's definitely a world in which it makes sense for both halves of that bargain to be doing this. It's it's something people don't like to think about, in my experience. A lot of professionals like to think of themselves as liberal and egalitarian. And the fact that their lifestyles depend on the cheap labor of other women makes them profoundly uncomfortable. But the reality is that if you are going to have a family and you're going to have two careers, then somebody has to do the childcare and somebody has to clean the house and somebody has to cut the grass and you cannot do everything. Well, in a way, it goes back to David Ricardo. Um, Specialization and trade compared to advantage are still very powerful and the opportunity cost of a of a wealthy person cutting uh, cutting their own grass is uh, high, and if there's a relatively cheap alternative, they're going to pay someone to do that rather than to do it themselves. Uh, the part that's really stunning about that observation that you make about um, the number of servants that people have, and of course, when 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 you use the word servants, uh, you tend to think about Downton Abbey, but we're talking, and some people do have live-in servants, of course, but we're really talking about people who hire folks here and there to do the lawn, to do uh, child care for a certain number of hours, to clean the house uh, once or twice a week, once a week or every other week. Um, but the point, the extra point, additional point that's fascinating you said is, is the following. You, you write, take the U.S. If you pick the 20 top female occupations, meaning, meaning the ones that employ the largest absolute numbers of women, you find that in seven of them, the workforce is over 90% female, and if you make it 80% female, it's over half of those female occupations. And that's true, and you say it's also true in Scandinavia, which is famous for its egalitarian uh, uh, ideals, at least the way we think about it from the outside. So your point is, is that even though women are increasingly integrated into traditional male fields such as the legal profession or medicine – in a lot of other fields, nothing has changed. It's utterly fascinating. I think it's I think it's extraordinary, and and I'll come back to Scandinavia in in a, in a second, actually, because I think it's a very classic example of how the way that our societies develop is overwhelmingly about economics, but also a bit about values and how we feel about ourselves as well. I do refer to servants, so I do it partly for slight shock value, but also because it seems to me that we have to recognise that. Somebody who looks after our child in a nursery outside our home is just as much working as a servant as somebody who does it inside our home, even if it makes it feel a bit better for some of us. And it's also why in this book I try to emphasize this this growing gap among women, which in some ways is mirroring the, the, the class divisions among men, but in some ways, as you've just pointed out, is, is quite different. And that's because so many of the, the non-elite women who are now in the paid workforce are effectively being paid to do outside the home 
things which they used to do inside the home. Um, when it was inside the home, they didn't get a pay packet and it didn't go into GDP figures, but they were doing those things. <clears throat> now, overwhelmingly, with these things that we have kind of outsourced, where we've put them outside the home and they're now part of the cash economy. These are done by women just as they always were. So those women have not changed the things that they do compared to all the rest of previous female human history. So what has happened is that as well as the integration of educated women into what had traditionally been a male workforce and into traditionally male occupations. Alongside this, you've got these new paid occupations, which are huge and which are overwhelmingly female and which involve the integration into the cash economy of things which used to be outside it, which used to be inside the home. And this is very, very common, and I'll come back now to Scandinavia, because there is this belief that in Scandinavia, somehow the whole gender gap has been abolished and, and everybody has the same life chances and everybody is treated the same. And these are wonderful societies in all sorts of ways. I don't want to, I don't want to sort of be, be rude about it. They're also the most gender-segregated labour markets in the world because they have taken to the so far the ultimate degree, the process of taking traditional within the house labor out of the house, putting it into organized institutions where the people who work there are paid, but all the people who work there are female. So, you know, you go to, they've got great day nurseries, they've got great kindergartens, they've got excellent daycare centers. They've got very, very good health services. But they have also got a society in which, as I said, you, the, the, the jobs are far more clearly mostly female or mostly male than they would be in the U.S. So I, wa I want to digress for a minute here because um, I'm just fascinated by that remark that you made in passing a minute ago about the unease we have about servants. So why is it, speculate for a minute, why is it that a high-powered male or female worker who makes a lot of money uh, has a lot of all kinds of fancy things in their life? They have nice cars, nice homes, nice vacations, good schools for their kids. Why is it that they feel uneasy paying for a, a real servant, someone who would live with them or would come often to their house rather than paying for that exact same service outside their home through a business. And I agree with you. It, it For some reason, it feels different. Do you have any thoughts on why that is? They're quite partial thoughts, but it, it fascinates me as well. And it's something that I also tend to feel. And I think there are a number of things. I think the most profoundly important is the set of values that characterize modern societies and which are actually central to the fact that women can succeed on their own and that we think it is absolutely right that, for example, all children, whether male or female, should have access to education, that we feel is completely intolerable that 
for example, there should be a female quota, which says sort of only 10% of the jobs can be female or something. And, and one of the things that I was utterly shocked to discover was that, you know, in my lifetime, there had been a rule in some places which said that the minute you got married, you had to leave your job and open it up for some man who might need it in order to support a family. I mean, you know, that, that didn't end in Ireland until sort of, well, 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 after I was born, that's for sure. So these are profound values and they, they underlie our, our whole society, which is that people are all worth the same amount. So we see, for example, democracy as an unquestionably good thing because it's one person, one vote. You know, it's sort of almost inconceivable for a modern citizen to to argue that there is something wrong with that idea. And the point about a master-servant relationship or a mistress-servant relationship is that it is intrinsically about two human beings being unequal and being unequal within a very sort of undefined face-to-face environment in which... To a degree, there are certain rules that you follow and you can not interact personally in a way that underlines who is an authority and who is servile. But it's kind of hard, whereas if it's outside the home, then it seems to be protected by all sorts of rules that depersonalize it. So you can accept the service, but you don't have to come face to face with the fact that one of you is above the other. So it's not just about unequal pay. It's also about the intrinsically unequal status that goes with giving orders and instructions in a face-to-face way to people. And, and, and I think that's the, that's the most the most important part about it, that it just makes us deeply uneasy about ourselves that we should be the people who are giving orders. And again, if you go back and you look at history and literature, it's perfectly true that people took it for granted in the past that um, there would be masters and there would be servants, but it doesn't mean they would like it. You know, we are the masters now is a pretty profound statement. Yeah, I guess part of it is also... um... I think there's an identity issue that ties in with what you're saying. It's certainly in America and I suspect in the UK and elsewhere as well, which is, you know, there have been surveys done. Most Americans see themselves as as middle class, even when they're not, (laughs) whichever end they're on of that, of the the scale. And in particular, I think people who are very well off uh, think the rich are people who make more than they do uh, as opposed to themselves. And when you, as you say, when you have to confront a, a servant in your home, you're you have to come face to face with the fact that you're not necessarily like everyone else. You're not middle class, um, and I think it. I think it makes people um, it makes people uneasy. And I think I think you're um, you're exactly right as to the that egalitarian impulse, which is in many ways just a very powerful example of modern culture that's that we absorb whether we're aware of it or not. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the why. So you've talked really about a revolution. Uh, it's a revolution that that affected, say, 15 to 20 percent of women. It's also, of course, a revolution on the male side. There are similar gaps between highly educated men and, 
and less educated or, or very low education men that, that are very important. But if we think about the women who have suddenly have this, this set of opportunities to, to get educated and then to use those skills, why did, why did that change? Talk a little bit about how that got started and uh, to the extent that we understand it, why. Okay, well, I think there are sort of two issues here. There's the the issue of widening inequality, which we've got among men as well, which I think is a slightly different one. And we can come back to sort of the general phenomenon of, of widening inequality in, in, in a moment. But why, why did it happen? I mean, bluntly, why did men let all these women in? I, you know, well, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. Why did they? Because I've said that values matter. Well, values do matter, but... Self-interest tends to matter a lot in, in, in the world, too, and I don't think that has changed. And when you actually think about it, and you think about this huge explosion of female education and the, 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 the push to, to educate your daughters, the acceptance you should educate your daughters, I don't think values on their own would have done it. And my take on this is that it was because of the changes in the economy, which meant that as a parent, including as a male parent, it became more and more important for the future prospects of your children that they have an intelligent and educated mother. And once that happens, then you set a dynamic going, which you find quite hard to stop. And in fact, one of the things that's quite interesting about the early years of um, feminist movement, creation of women's education and so on, is that you do have a lot of men who are also interested in and feel it's important that the women of the country should also be educated, partly because these were, quote, liberal, but partly because they are talking about this as something which is going to change the quality of, of motherhood, that you will have educated and emancipated good mothers. So what happened in the 19th century, well, two things happened. I mean, the first thing which is sort of quite intriguing is that as the the economy changed, it actually became much easier for more men to support a family on, on one wage without there being lots of people who were so poor that, you know, you went out into the fields with, with your kids because everybody had to bring the harvest in. But you actually have, so the development of, of the, 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 the wage earner family. But among the middle classes, what you're getting is a, an, an opening up of opportunity. And it's an opening up of opportunity for those who are overwhelmingly men, but they are literate and they are numerate, they are educated. So you've got a genuine change in the workforce. And that means that if you want your your sons to do well in life, those sons need to be intelligent and educated. And that means that an educated, literate wife is not only going to be possibly more amusing around the house, but is actually going to be somebody who can actually help your children. And equally, you're going to want to educate your daughters, partly because by now you've come to feel that girls should be educated, but also because, firstly, they will probably be unattractive to a future husband if they're more or less completely uneducated themselves. And secondly, because, and this is the dynamic, there are new jobs opening up. So if things don't go well and your poor daughter doesn't make a good marriage, well, she can always be a school teacher. So you've got this 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 the shift, which to some degree, I think, is fueled by changing values. But to a large extent, 
I think is fueled by family self-interest, that it actually starts to make sense to have not just in a few enlightened places, but across the across the, the economy, it starts to be more and more attractive to have both daughters who can earn a decent living before they, they get married by being educated, but even more, and this is in the middle classes, by having, if you like, high-value mothers for your sons. And then once you've set, you know, then once you've opened the stable door or whatever the metaphor is, I mean, you don't get them back in again, do you? Yeah, how do you keep them down on the farm after they've seen Perry would be my uh, metaphor. But once, you, once you've had a chance to learn something, it's kind of exciting. I just want to mention before we go on that um, there is a temptation here to treat education as destiny. And, of course, these are generalizations we're talking about. There are many highly educated people who struggle and who struggle to, to marry, struggle to make a good living. There are many poorly educated people who s- succeed, who can marry and stay married. Uh, I know we have many listeners at Econ Talk who have PhDs, and we have many who are high school dropouts. And we're fortunate to live in a time where you can be educated without going to school through uh, podcasts and other ways. So I just, I just want to put that that footnote in. I, I couldn't. No, I completely agree. Like all of these things, these are wild generalizations, but they're generalizations that are about broad. They're true on average. And and actually on education, I mean, um, as somebody who spends a lot of time arguing that education is neither the solution to everything nor the cause of everything, either at an individual or a social level, that is that is clearly the case. But what I do want to, to emphasize is that what happened in the 19th and early 20th century was that more and more jobs demanded education. And therefore, there were more and more people for whom it made sense to be educated. That did not mean that only the educated could succeed. It did not mean that the minute you were educated, everything would happen. There could be all sorts of things in your life, in your neighborhood, in your country. At an individual level, nothing is determinate in that way. But I guess this is why we have Econ Talk. At a broad historical sweep level, these changes matter. Yeah, I, I, I just exactly. And I just want to add one more uh, footnote before going on, which is that uh, if my planning uh, as hoster goes as expected, my guest last week was Matt Ridley talking about his book, The Evolution of Everything. And we're talking about emergent phenomenon. And you asked the question, why did the men let the women into all these jobs? And the answer, of course, is that they weren't in charge. They looked like they were in charge, but there were broader forces at work that uh, pushed uh, change that, that nobody planned or designed. Uh, and uh, there are many great things about it. And some things, of course, are not so great. Uh, one of the great. What? <laughs> Um, well, I was going to say, I mean, you know, the, the, the subtitle of my book about a far less equal world, I mean, if I may, I'd like to come back to this phenomenon that you mentioned, which again is not something anybody planned, which is the, 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 the growing inequality. And of course, one of the things that has happened is that the way you look at what has happened to, to women is quite interesting. Among men in the United States, you've got this this growing phenomenon of a bigger gap between the bottom and the top, and you've got stagnant or falling average wages, and, and, and I'm sure you've talked about this on many occasions. What you get when you look at women is, well, inequality among women has grown faster, but that's partly, of course, because... 
since professional women started way back, once they started going forward, that was likely to increase inequality among women. But of course, it's also the, the other phenomenon, which is that so many of the lower paid women in the workforce are working part time, are working at jobs which are traditional female jobs, which often fit with their own lives, but where the potential for big wage increases is very poor. And so you've got this this concentration of many women in the worst paid jobs at the same time as you've got women storming the barricades at the top in considerable numbers. And and, I, and again, I think it, it underlies the, the complexity, the emergent nature of what happens in our societies, because you've got a sort of interaction here between a load of different factors, global changes in the economy, changes in the family patterns of women, changes in the number of women in the top jobs. I mean, all of these things interact and they can be quite hard to disentangle. Well, the other factor, which I think is a common theme here on on the program, is the challenge of uh, separating out the impact of the economy per se, separate separate from demographic changes. And one of the things that your book reminds us of, which is I think extremely important when interpreting the data, is that less educated women are less likely to marry and highly educated women are more likely to marry highly educated men. That is compared to 40 and 50 and 30 years ago, which means that when you use household income as your determinant of inequality, which most people do, you're going to get effects of inequality that are purely demographic. So their labor market changes interacting with these demographic changes, these marriage patterns, which are going to uh, exacerbate the measure the measured inequality that, that you find. Uh, and I think that's just – people never want to f- confront that, but they should. I, I think that's right. I mean one of the things which actually took me slightly aback when I was doing the research on the book was the fact that not only did the – more educated, better paid women tend to get married more and get divorced less. But exactly this pattern of, of increased tendency of the of of women like that to marry men like themselves and of men like that to marry women like themselves. And that's true even allowing for sort of changes. I mean it's not, you know, it's it's partly that there were fewer highly successful professional women for professional men to marry. But it's not just that. It actually seems to be um, this this sort of almost segregation is, 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 is too strong a word. I mean, it's not pure segregation, but, but this tendency of like to marry like, which again is an international phenomenon, is, is very, very marked in, in, in marriage and family formation. And it goes, I think, with the... The growing anxiety also about about how about children and child rearing and and making sure that they have the best and that they are set on a path in which they too can marry somebody like themselves and it's 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 a little chilling, but it's also something that I think we have to be aware of because the numbers are there, and it's not just in the United States, it's in the Netherlands, it's in germany it's it's everywhere. Yeah, I want to I want to step back a minute and talk about something that that's um, that fascinated me. I, there's a myth, or a, at least a story that you suggest is more of a myth uh, about 
women's uh, emancipation from from housework, which is that labor-saving devices came along, the dishwasher, the washing machine. Uh, this took a lot of the toil out of the household life, freed up women to do more work in uh, in the paid labor force. But you suggest that pizza, of all things, might be even more important. Talk about those uh, those factors. I'd be delighted to talk about pizza. I don't actually like it, but I'd be delighted to talk about it. You might be alone, Alison. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that was the single most surprising thing, actually. What seems to have happened, and, and this again comes back to, I think, values and people's feeling that they should put in a day's work, is that when we as societies invented washing machines and dishwashers and vacuum cleaners and all of this stuff. Women didn't do fewer hours work around the house. They basically just had cleaner houses and they didn't wear clothes for as many days and they did more elaborate meals and all the rest of it. And we and we know this because we've got these fascinating sources of data in which people kept daily diaries. This isn't about saying, you know, which of you which of you did their did their fair share of the housework last week? Because everybody always thinks they did more than their fair share. But um, <laughs> it's it's not actually getting people to keep diaries for sort of quite limited periods of time, so you know that they're actually doing it. And what you discover is that the the thing that actually made a huge difference to the number of hours that people put in at housework and really transformed their their lives, and particularly made it much easier for women to go out to work was exactly that. I mean, it was pizza first, but it was the the growth of fast food generally, of deliveries, of ready-made meals in a supermarket that you could bear to eat, The all these patterns. And I, I don't know whether you did this at all when you were reading the book, but one of the things that I found was fabulous when I was writing it was trying to relate it to my my own family and my own life. And also, this is something where I tend to ask my my students who are mostly not 22-year-olds, they're mostly people in their late 20s and early 30s. And it's just kind of like, how many, how many meals did you actually eat outside the house last week? And the, how many of them did you actually get food delivered in? How many of them did you use at least some ready cooked ingredients. And you compare that to the way that meals were made throughout the whole of human history, except for a very few people. And it's just a dramatic change. It's not that nobody cooks. Um, we all watch cookery programs like crazy. And we have these sort of you know, one or two meals a week often where you put huge amounts of effort in. But the pattern of eating is just completely different. And you know, I have this extraordinary book on my shelves, which belonged to my grandmother, which was a sort of guide to keeping a home. If you got married in the 1940s or something and you sort of plan these meals and you use the bits of the cold joint for this. And, and this was this was a really full time occupation. It really was. And then you think about how how we eat today and it's a complete revolution. It's created vast numbers of new jobs, most of them not very well paid. Um, whole new industry of people preparing, ready to eat, ready to take away meals. But it has freed women from the kitchen in the way that a washing machine or a dryer, a washer or a dryer just never did. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. And of course, it's a simultaneous system. There's feedback working in both directions. As more and more women work, there's more and more options for things that make it easier to to work, and of course, as those things increase, it makes it easier to work, and and those they work together. Um, the other two factors I think that are important, and again, these are 
to some extent, both one of them I would say is somewhat exogenous and one is more likely to be endogenous, although it's of course it's complicated. And that's the welfare state and and birth control. So if we if we think about this revolution that we're talking about, yes, there were glimmers of it in the twenties of the twenty early part of the twentieth century, late part of the nineteenth century. There's there's uh the suffrage movement, women get to vote, there's egalitarian stirrings, but the unleashing of, of women into the labor market really starts dramatically in this, especially married women, especially married women with children, starts in the last half of the 20th century. And that interacts with marriage and male-female roles in very complicated ways. So some of it's technology, as you pointed out, of of the productivity of high education. But there's also, at the same time, uh, sexual liberation through the pill and also uh, liberation from the workforce, if you want, in some societies because of the state and a change in how necessary or urgent it is to find a partner who can take care of you. So talk a little bit about how those those all those forces interact. And of course, your book does this quite artfully. It's not a it's it's not an easy thing to to weave these stories together. And it's obviously very complicated, but they're all going on at the same time. That's that's absolutely true. I, the there are the three things. I mean, there are sort of occasionally you can actually date it. Like you can you can date when people the, you can find the year when people started to be able to phone for pizza, and and you can actually see the you can actually see the drop off of, in the number of hours people spend in the kitchen just sort of starting and going on like that. And you can date the moment when the pill became available. And there is just absolutely no question that, of course, it wasn't the only thing, but the fact that there was this extraordinarily uniquely reliable form of contraception was obviously one of the things that had a dramatic impact on on, on people's behavior. So they're, they're sort of kind of dramatic moments, whereas the welfare state is much more complicated and much more gradual. And of course, it's something where it comes in differing forms in differing countries. But you're, of course, absolutely right that it also made a huge difference because Throughout human history until quite recently, life was genuinely insecure if you didn't have a family. It was just so easy to fall off the edge. And again, particularly if you were a woman, there was nothing you could do. If you didn't have a family, there was basically no no acceptable way of supporting yourself and children if you were left widowed and jobless. So the welfare state has made a huge difference because it means to to put it bluntly, that if all else fails, you can rely on the state as your family. They will provide a safety net. You can be, as a woman in some sense, married to the state. Yeah, if, you don't, yeah. if, you, if you don't want a particularly high-class husband... You can marry Uncle Sam. You can, you can, you, exactly. The state will provide you, as a mother, with enough money to live on. And there are much better husbands out there, but if, but if you can't get a decent husband... The state will keep you and your kids alive at a level of welfare, which would have been quite luxurious to most of our ancestors. So that is another dramatic change, and you and you can see this. And we talked earlier about the fact that professional women don't have children without husbands to help support them, and we can come back to that in a minute, but it's also not just about values probably. At the other end, of course, the the Again, all over the world, you've got this increasing number of families where the 
that there never was a father or the father has gone and you have a mother with one or more children living partly or wholly off the state. Now, we also know that these this is not a great family pattern. It's not one that any girl of 18 wants. I mean, this is not what people grow up saying, you know, hey, when I grow up, I'm going to have kids and there isn't going to be a father. That's not what they want at all. But the reality is that it is a possibility. And if nothing better is is on offer, it's very nice to at least have some children who will love you and you will love them and you will work for them and they will be a family to you. And even though you don't need them in order to stay alive the way you did in the past as you got older, nonetheless, this is a very profound human urge. And so this is one of the other things that has made life among women so much more varied in the the life stories that they follow than it ever was 50, 100, 300 years ago. At the top, it's very different. At the bottom, it's very different too. Yeah, talk about that actually and talk about um, the similarities between male and, and men and women in this area. So at the higher educated levels, families tend to be very small except in the super high income levels. But in the upper 20%, roughly, families are very small in number, or, and, and some folks, they delay, as you say, they delay childbirth or they don't have children at all. That's true. Now, I think it's also worth pointing out that in developed societies, by historic or even quite recent standards, the, the families at the bottom are not very big either. They're just bigger than the families at the top. But that's absolutely true. The, the the more educated the families, the less likely they are to have any children or one more than one child. And if you look at graduates of male and female graduates of, of the Ivy League, they aren't beginning to reproduce themselves. Many of them will not have, and this is just as much the men as the women, and I really want to emphasize this, Highly educated men are also having no children or tiny families. It's not just the women, it's the men and the women. And I think there's a variety of reasons for this, but mostly it has to do with the fact that you feel people are caught up in their careers. It takes time to get yourself established. There are pressures, there are opportunities, time goes by. And then there's either you just don't get married because you are extremely caught up in your in your in your career and once you get to the point where you aren't going to have a family marriage becomes that bit less important anyway but a lot of it is just that you you wait till it's late you both have pressures you both have careers it's expensive to have a child um uh, to have a, a a very highly educated highly treasured child is an expensive proposition and time and, and money in time and money, and we put huge amounts of both in. And so what happens is that the average family size comes down. And even though you've got a lot considerable number of people who have, say, two children, then you've also got a considerable number who have none, and you've got a considerable number who have one and that's it, and the, another one never comes along or you can't cope. And you end up with this very, very low birth rate among the highly educated and and very, very intermarried professional group. And then at the at the bottom, what you get is you have people having children much younger and in the middle much younger. And the family size is definitely bigger. 
and as well as having the children younger, and of course, the younger you start having children, the easier it is to have them. So this is also related to when you start trying. But there too, you've got a, a growing difference in, 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 in compared to history. Because historically, of course, it was the, the affluent who had more living children because they had children and they kept them alive more. So again, this is a very, very dramatic change. And the fact that the birth rate has gone down for everybody has been accompanied by these these growing differences. And the the less educated the 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 group as a whole, the more the more children they are having on average. Yeah, I'm thinking about uh the work of Gary Becker, who was um excoriated and vilified in early in his career for suggesting that we should treat uh, children as uh, as assets, as capital goods, goods that produced a flow of benefits to us. And there's something very unattractive about that um, that way of thinking about it, As a certainly as a father. But as an economist, it's an interesting way to think about it. And he relentlessly pushed the point, at least when uh, he began working on this. I, I know his earlier uh, work on the area better than I do his later work. But in his earlier work, he talked about the trade-off between quantity and quality, and he said, he would argue that as we got wealthier, we wanted to quote higher quality children. That is more investments in them, more music lessons, more education for them. That's very expensive, and so we tend to. This was his explanation for why we tended to have fewer children as we got wealthier over time, and also why wealthier families have uh, fewer children at a point in time. And what you're pointing out is that 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 is is in many ways has just become that effect has just become stronger as the educational demands and the you know, if you want your kid to get into a a high prestige university you have to jump through a lot of um, fancy hoops uh, and as a result you it's expensive and it's not just it's you know we've been talking about how you can pay for certain services if you're high income and your time is scarce but. There are a lot of things about raising a child you can't farm out, you can't pay for, you can't purchase. Um, and so inevitably, there is a great deal of, of things that the parents uh, want to do for their children. And as a result, it's hard to have lots of kids. Uh, I'm, I'm the happy father of four, I want to say. Uh, and I'm, I'm very glad I made that trade-off. I encourage people to uh, have lots of kids. I think it's generally a good thing. Uh, both for the world and for your own uh, well-being and psyche, but uh, over on average, I'm way outside the norm. Well, I'm I'm really impressed that you got four. I have to say, I'm outside my the wife, norm. My wife, Allison, I have to say, my wife helped. I just want to get that. <laughs> you said I have four. Oh, I, I think I hope I said we have four. I don't know whether I said I have four, I but said, we have four. I said I, and I said we. We have three, and I have to say that. Um, after that, we kind of lost our nerve. We just didn't think we could keep all the balls up at yeah, once. It was kind of, oh my god! I think this might this might even have been, you know, one too far. Actually, it was we we just about managed. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I don't know whether in the past I think it was entirely clear that that a large part of having children was that they were your welfare state. Um, so it was actually, you know, you're, you're right. Gary Becker was was absolutely vilified. But I think you have to think about human behavior this way. It doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of emotion and a lot of love involved. But 
But you make decisions as you go through life. I mean, that's what your whole program is about. Um, it's what economics is about. I mean, scarce resources and you have to allocate them, right? Um, one of the things that's interesting about children is exactly what you said, that they are incredibly time intensive today. Um, I think that most people feel they're more of a consumption good than anything else. <laughs> but um, one of the things that's fascinating is that all parents, and particularly all fathers, have been increasing the average amount of time they spend with their kids in the last few decades. The fathers who have been increasing time most and the mothers who have been increasing time most are our friends, the professional classes. That's one reason why they always look so exhausted because compared to everybody else, it isn't all wonderful at the top. They get less sleep. Yeah. Um, but it's very striking that for a combination of reasons which are, you know, cultural uncertainty, worry about your kids, and, and also, as I said, just, just changes in culture. I think people do treat their children differently, and they are, across the classes, more involved with them in an emotional way and in worrying about them and in making sure that they get things and do things. And that is more intense. The, the more, in a way, you're, you're kids might have to lose and the more you feel that you might be able to help them and you owe it to them to help them and you desperately want them to to have a life as good as you have had um so the, there's a sense that the more you can do for your kids the more you do do for your kids and that brings us back to this this in some ways, over-anxious, intensive parenting that a lot of people have commented on, yeah. which is there in the numbers. I mean, it's just extraordinary, the amount of sort of one-to-one, face-to-face, not sort of sticking them in the back of the, in, in the back while you go to do the, the grocery shop, but actually doing things with them. That, that, that has increased as a proportion of people's time just enormously, alongside both parents going out to work. Well, it's an I, you know, I think it's a glorious thing uh, it, that the spending time with your children. And I, no, I no, 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 I do too. I would like to put that on record, not yeah. having up. That I also think spending time with your children is one of the most wonderful things you can do in life. Yeah, but- I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to suggest you disagreed, but I think what's fascinating to me is this is also another enormous revolution: the so-called helicopter parenting and um, yes. the effort that parents put in for children's. Status again in education typically is the most prominent example, but it's 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 everywhere, um, and I that's an I think an untapped uh, vein of exploration. I don't think uh, maybe sociologists have done a lot of work on. It. I assume they have now that I think about it. But just the there's been a lot of people saying it's a bad idea. It's bad for the kids, but why it's happening and the you know just obviously it, in many ways. If I had to pick one thing, which is a bizarre thing, but I think it has a lot to do with it, it's the limited number of elite colleges. It's hard to create an elite college from scratch. Entry is very expensive, and parents are obsessed um, with their child getting into an elite college, and it's um, – they may be onto something. I think maybe it's overrated. I don't know. As somebody who works at Stanford, I wouldn't want to suggest that for a moment, but – it, it, there is a pressure and an urgency about it for many parents. And as you, I think, point out in the book, it starts in kindergarten in some locations. The kids got to get into the right kindergarten to get into the right private school to get into the right college. And all of these things, the fundamental scarcity that's that's forcing this competition is the elite college thing, which, as you point out, is really what's driving the success of that 15 to 20 percent women 
at the top. So we've come full circle. <laughs> um, I, I think that's right. And I have no solution to it, even though in many ways it appalls me because the trouble is that the, the more global the elite labor market becomes, the more there's a limited number of kind of brand names that anybody can recognize. And it's not that you can't succeed if you don't go there. It's just that if you do go there, you come out with this, this label, this brand, which is recognizable and, and seems to to any parent to be something that on the whole they'd rather their kids have than that they didn't have. And it is very hard to to see how you can stop this. It's it's very striking in, in, in Europe, in countries where there's a very hierarchical system like the UK, where there's sort of Oxford and Cambridge at the top and people just, you know, what everybody wants to know about a school is how many kids did they send there? And then you get European parents who are also agonizing about getting their kids into good universities in the UK because, A, we have a hierarchical university system with brand name um, schools and and B of course you know they improve their English as well and and you can see this this kind of race going on and it's not obvious how you stop it because as a parent you feel well of course it's not the only way to succeed of course it's not the only thing that matters but it doesn't hurt does it well I'm optimistic. Well, I, I want to say one other thing about it before I talk about optimism, which is that I think for a lot of parents, it is a consumption good. Uh, it's a class status um, thing. It's not so much worrying about what happens to their kids. It's to make sure they can hold their head up at the cocktail party. But um, And I, I, I don't think that's going to go away. What I do think might go away, though, is the uh, lack of access to those top institutions uh, to some extent, uh, the technological revolution of the internet and podcasts and MOOCs and other things are going to make it easier for larger groups of people to get educated, but they still might not have the right stamp on their forehead. And we're going to find out how important that is relative to what you actually learn um, when you're in college. We're, we're short on time. I'd, I'd like to close talking about culture. Um, I think there's sort of uh, two ways to look at the revolution that we're talking about. This both the revolution of women becoming more involved in, in education and therefore higher skilled jobs, higher paying jobs, at the same time the gap growing between and then becoming more like men, and at the same time a growing gap between types of women and their both their experiences and their and their income. So there's a tendency, I think, among some to treat this as a cultural phenomenon, uh, to say that women's liberation has brought this about. As economists, we tend to look at it as not so much as a cultural phenomenon. Uh, we look at these exogenous changes you mentioned earlier, technological change, uh, and how that changed the returns to education, and that drove a lot of what we're talking about. But it seems to me they all work together. Uh, everything is endogenous. Culture responds to economics as much as it's formed by cert – certainly as much by that as it is formed by, say, elites who you know, opine about this or that – and it just strikes me that we're in a time of incredible ferment in how men and women see their roles as as parents, as spouses, as employees, and that that culture is going to evolve as to what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Um, you close by talking about – you're saying that even though women are much more like men, you suggest they won't become 50 percent of the top jobs. That there, there are differences that are going to persist even in the face of these cultural changes, even in the face of these economic changes. So talk about 
where you see things going and uh, whether you think I'm right about this ferment. I think you're totally right about the ferment. And I think that when I look at younger generations, people who are younger than me, much younger than me, there are differences in which they in, in how they see the world that, that from, from how my generation did. But I do think that whether or not you are male or female remains extremely important. I think in some ways, curiously enough, um, what I can see happening is a dramatic change in the egalitarian nature of middle-income families. I think in some ways they have, they, they are more likely to have shared opportunities and fewer kind of, well, do I stay at home or do you stay at home kind of choices than at the top. I'll tell you why I think it won't be 50-50. If you are a highly educated, successful, professional woman, in some ways it's tougher for you because you don't, on the whole, want to marry somebody less successful who will just stay at home and be a not very successful person you maintain. So you've therefore got two highly motivated people who want to make careers, but it's still much more respectable to, to, to sort of go sideways if you're the woman. And... It's not just that the men force it on their wives to be the one who, on the whole, takes on the larger role in childcare. I'm sure some of it is, but a lot of it is not. And this is, again, it's just kind of an arithmetic fact. If you have 100 women and 100 men, and they're all starting off the same, and they're all successful and they marry each other, and there are a number of the women who, when that baby comes along, thinks, you know, actually, I'm not that ambitious and I don't really want to go to the top of Goldman Sachs or whatever. And this is a good reason to kind of go slightly sideways. More of them will feel it's entirely socially acceptable to do that than the men will who will to, to say, you know what, you go on climbing the corporate ladder and, and I'll go sideways a little. So I just kind of think it'll end up sort of 60, 40, generation after generation because as a woman, you're the one who ends up with the baby everywhere but in the US, you're offered generous maternity leave. You, Some of you discover you actually don't really mind if you don't go up as fast as you thought you minded. And so I just think that the choices will pan out in such a way that it's not 50-50, but it will be just close, you know, let's say 60-40, 65-35, it will no longer be exciting that a woman is a conductor of a great orchestra. It will no longer be exciting that yet another country has has elected a female president or a prime minister. It will just be normal. Now, I'm sure there are other things that are fermenting away. And the future of the human family and the future of demography at a time when we are watching population set to fall in a good number of the world's richest countries. I haven't a clue what's going to happen. Um, I know I can't predict it because nobody ever does. But I'd sort of put quite a lot of money if I could collect in 50 years on that 60-40 proposition. And it could, it, you're betting very much against the 60-40 going the other direction, oh, which, totally. which, is, which is in a lot of I think in a lot of law schools, a lot of universities, uh, women, as you say, I think you mentioned this earlier, it's not just that they've, there are almost as many women as men. There are a lot more women than men. This is true. Um, although across 
you know, if you average it out across, you know, you add in engineering, computer science, you're right. I mean, so so your argument would be, suppose you end up where the, the graduates of the top colleges are 70% women and only 30% men, and then the women won't be able to find higher earning husbands. So the husbands will have to be the lower earner who stays home. Um, maybe I'm, I'm not totally, I, I, no, I, I, I don't think so. I think women, interestingly, this is the point at which somebody will start throwing things at, at whatever they're listening to. I think women do, again, subconsciously find themselves attracted to professions because professions, you know, as opposed to managerial business type roles, professions are relatively easy to continue climbing up without working 150 percent every year of your life. As long as you don't actually want to be a partner in a Wall Street firm. Law is a pretty good thing to do if you're a female and you actually also want to be the half of the partnership that maybe puts in a bit less in the way of hours at the office. So I think that, you know, m- my hunch is that that's, that has quite a lot to do with it. So, yeah, on, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going for the 60-40, 60% male, 40% female in the top 1%, but 50-50 in the top 15 one last comment. Um, I've been struck. I've thought about writing about this. My, my, my kids tell me I shouldn't. So I'll, I'll, I'll make a lot of enemies but, um, and lose friends. But I, I, and people throw things at whatever they're listening to. But I've been struck how cultural norms for men and women have, have started to merge rather dramatically. Um, what used to be considered feminine behavior, uh, what used to be considered masculine behavior. My favorite example is uh, male athletes cry all the time now on, in public. Uh, when I was a child, that just was unheard of. The culture of male athleticism was a, a very old-fashioned bastion of keep your feelings in, tough it out. Um, but we have a world now where the most valuable player of the National Basketball Association, will, uh, Kevin Durant, gets an award. And he's, uh, I think it was the MVP, and he was he's sobbing on national television in front of in front of his teammates uh, who he's invited to the event and that's just that's so unimaginable um uh, you know 10 years ago even and he was saluted for it no one, no one said he's there's something wrong with him he was he was lauded greatly for his emotional uh, openness and i think you know I, I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing it's probably a good thing i have no idea but i'm not commenting on that what i'm commenting on is it's i see it and i see that as a response to the labor force phenomenon rather than an exogenous cultural change. Do you think those kind of changes are happening now? Does that ring um, a bell for you? I think it does, though Though I would also say that the other thing that has changed is that as nations, we have been on our home territory at peace for a long time. That's a great and observation. <laughs> if that changed, I think maybe the what is acceptable and admirable and desirable behavior might start to separate again between the two genders. I mean, I know that we have lots of women, including in combat roles, but what is also true is that we are less and less societies in which old style military virtues seem to be incredibly relevant. And if the world starts to blow up, who knows? My guest today has been Allison Wolf. Her book is The Double X Factor. Allison, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you again for inviting me.
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.